0: Hi there. I'm sorry. I I didn't see you there. I suppose you're here to listen to another episode of Certified Forgotten, which is and will always be the best horror podcast that reviews films with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I am your host, Matthew Monigle, but I'm only one half of the mad hosts on the show. I am joined, as always, by my partner in long-haired crime. It's Matt Zanotto. How are you doing, bud?
1: Very good. I I, I mean, I'm upholding the long hair. Uh, One of us has cut our locks already, and, and it has not been me.
0: Oh, yeah, I lost all of my power. That was a real Samson and Delilah situation right there. I'm I don't still, ri- I can't write for shit anymore. Like I sit down and I'm like, what are words?
1: Listen, I, I'm just it's curling more and I'm just now way too curious. I keep saying I want to see if it goes straight. But now I'm kind of admitting that it just is never going to go straight. And it makes me even more curious to see where it goes next. So we're we're holding out on that, Erica. We're going to see what happens here.
0: Yeah, I mean, plus, you know, you, your family hasn't seen you in like two years. So I imagine the moment you finally make it back to the shore which is in my head where you're from, um, they'll probably they'll probably bully you into getting a haircut.
1: Not from the Jersey Shore, from New Jersey, closer to New York City. Mm -hmm. No, I can't can't tell the difference. Absolutely not. It's called Taylor Ham. It's not pork roll. I'm from Jersey. Disco fries rule.
0: Anyways, this banter has been delightful, really just like setting a high bar for the episode as a whole, I think. But uh, but we have a guest and it's your job to introduce the guest. So uh, let's hit it. We do. We do have another guest because that is what we do on this podcast.
1: We bring in people that are better at what we do so that we don't keep dominating the conversation. So today we have a newcomer to the podcast, luckily. And you may have known them from writing about things on Blade Disgusting, Remork, Fangoria. That could have been movies. That could have been video games. They are a master of all trades that come to horror and media. And it is Reina Cervantes. Reina, hello. Thank you for coming.
2: Hello, gentlemen. Thank you
0: so much for having me. Of course, um, I'm I'm excited to talk about the film for today because I think that this is kind of, for, Reina, from what I know about you, this is sort of a perfect encapsulation of your interests as a horror fan and as a video game writer as well, and we're going to get to that. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet. Um, <laughs> before we before we talk about the film. Um, as we do with all of our guests, we want to spend a little bit of time getting to know you. So you've probably heard this question before in past episodes. um, And, you know, unfortunately, our friends at uh, Scarred for Life stole it from us. Darn those guys. Um, But I want to know what what started your horror journey for you. What were those kind of first films you saw at a too young age, or maybe at an age-appropriate age, that really sparked your interest in the horror genre?
2: So... It's funny because I've told this story on Scarred for Life. So it's like, I knew, it. I, it. I knew it. I did it. I Terry and Mary Beth beat y'all to it, <laughs> but uh, I'll tell it again. Um, so uh, I guess my, my parents have always really kind of been in a horror. Um, my mom, she grew up like late 70s, early 80s. Um, so around the time I was seven years old, she's like, hey, I'm going to show you this movie. I need you to know it's 100% fiction, it can't happen, um, and we're just going to have fun with it. And she gave me a VHS copy of the very first Halloween, which was my first horror movie. Um, the John Carpenter classic, not the Rob Zombie one, but who's to say really? Um, So pretty much from there, like, I fell in love with the movie and just wanted to see, like, pretty much any and all slashers and i lived up the street from not only a blockbuster video but a hollywood video and would just rent like everything like i gotta be one of the few people i know that saw the friday the 13th movies like in order because i had one rented two then three and so on until i worked my way through the entire series and then pretty much just got to a point where it's like like this was like before the days of like, Oh, you got to look up what this movie has like critic wise, like if it's worth your time or not, like Mm -hmm. it's like if a horror movie had a bitch in cover, I'd rent it and watch it.
0: Yeah. What was it about Hollywood video that just made it so much cooler than blockbuster? Like Hollywood video. I I didn't, I didn't grow up around one. There wasn't one in my entire city, but there was Mm -hmm. one near where I went to college and it was like, Oh, let's go to Hollywood video, man.
2: So two reasons. One Um, if, if Blockbuster was a corporate store, they would edit their movies. Hollywood video never edited their movies and even new releases. It was always five day rentals.
0: Those are pretty good reasons. Uh, if you're, if you're (laughs) like below the age of 25 and listening to this, all of what Raina just said probably means nothing to you, but trust me when we say that those are good reasons to, to go to one video store over another.
1: When it was a Hollywood video in my town. And well, we had Hollywood video, we had Blockbuster, but we would always go to the Hollywood because I had a friend that worked there and he was one of the clerks behind the counter. And this is when I began to really collect physical media. And I was so into every Thursday, it would be the new drop of the new releases that week that would come out on DVD. We weren't even at Blu rays at this point. And I used to remember. He used to let me in like a day or two early. So it was like Tuesday or Wednesday and I could get a copy of whatever it was. I would just like take it from the display and you wouldn't tell anybody and I'd pay for it. Obviously, it wasn't stealing, but I would be able to buy that like a day or two early. And I remember all my friends wanted to see Blades of Glory and I had seen it already. So like I was able to get the movie before it came out, even on DVD. And I was so cool for like a single night because I could show it to all my friends and it wasn't available yet.
2: I was saying it was cool for Hollywood video because you would get to take like the art home. Whereas like blockbuster video, it would just be a blockbuster box like the blue and white. Yeah, it's nostalgic. But Hollywood video, you got to take like that cool cover home.
0: Uh, so so love of, of genre film started. What, what we're going to we're going to say Hollywood video. Fuck off blockbuster. So it started for you <laughs> at Hollywood video. Um, mm-hmm. What was how did that develop? Because you said you started in slashers, which is usually I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of horror fans come to slashers a little bit later in their movie watching. But how did your own taste as you were getting older and going through like high school and stuff? How did that kind of develop? Did you maintain a laser locked in interest in horror? Did you go away from it and come back to it, et cetera?
2: It was pre- pretty much horror. Um, I got like into video games a lot and got obsessed with horror video games. Mm-hmm. So it was like any form of horror media. It was like it was even seeping into like my music taste because like Slipknot was my favorite band in high school so it was like horror like based everything um i never really broke away i guess my idea of breaking away from it was like my dad hated slashers so he was like can you rent a sci-fi movie like tonight and i'd rent like the thing or star trek or something for him but um yeah it was just kind of always like i was never really into the mainstream per se i know that's like a shit term for like what general audiences are into i was always into like the weird stuff like i would google like oh most fucked up movies and then i would Mm -hmm. work my way down that list and it's like oh irreversible solo frontiers and like i i just kind of deep dive on all of it and never really left the genre as you guys can tell
0: yeah it's it's funny I feel like if you came of age um, around the time that, that you did you know and and even me a few years before that you were kind of in this weird golden era where you had access to stuff like the internet was kind of in the place where you could look up that kind of thing right like you could go and find like these really incredibly messed up movies that would still be on shelves because you know people were just buying whatever kind of came in you'd go to a pawn shop and you'd find a VHS or a DVD of it so it really was sort of like a For a period there, it was a crazy good time to be a collector of physical media because you kind of had access, but more than just access, you had like the early days of filtering. You had enough information and enough of those online forums and communities were popping up about disc trading and collecting and all that kind of stuff that it was really easy to find answers for the first time ever. Whereas even five years before, you know you bought and nobody on the show is not a huge fi- fan of the man but like your library your lexicon of film information was like leonard malton's guide to the movies of which we all own several but that was like that was it and if it wasn't in there mm-hmm. and if it didn't give you a good description in there you were kind of like oh well i guess i, I guess this might be a good movie or not right like the days of it, being able to just blindly pluck castle freak off the shelves had come to an end
2: it- You know, that's funny you say that because my parents used to buy me the new edition of that book like every year. And like the movies that would get like one and a half or bomb, I'd be like, okay, I'm watching that one because I know I'll probably like it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was that. But that's that was it for us for a long time, right? It's like you had to find a film critic who hated hated really gross stuff and then basically be like, yes, yes, Roger Ebert hated this movie. So that means I shall love it.
2: Yeah. Ebert and Siskel gave this like two thumbs down. That means it probably rips. (laughs) (laughs) yeah but
1: then ebert loved the evil dead and stuff like that so those were always so up in the air and i think that's why especially in college for me we talk about video stores and definitely that was a huge influence but even then i would go to video stores and there was some level of censorship because my parents were still around and i still couldn't get away with certain Mm -hmm. things so for me it was Mm -hmm. netflix and blockbuster when they did the take home or like the mail service where you could go online you could find your movie they would ship it to you and like that was such a cool Mm -hmm. thing because I would be reading the at the time I would be reading it at cool because we're talking a long time ago and I didn't know any better at the time Uh, bloody disgusting Mm -hmm. things of that nature and that's how I would find it I, I didn't have the Highbrow criticism under my belt at that point. I wasn't reading that much of Malton and things of that nature, but I went like ground floor, and I just found the wine, the Scott Weinbergs, and those kind of critics, and they became my bible. They became the ones that I started to listen to. And Reina, to your to your message before about finding the most fucked up movies, very much I was going around trying to find out how to watch a Serbian film and all that other shit. So I was the same boat. Mm
2: yeah yeah it's it's really that thing it's like oh what's the closest i can get to like rotten or that's com without actually going to those sites
0: well i want to ask because you were talking a little earlier about kind of like you found video games um and and kind of that section too that became a big interest of yours obviously today you know you've seen the title of the episode we're talking about a a movie adaptation of a horror video game but i'm curious about how those kind of connections formed between the horror genres as film, and then sort of the video games, and especially horror video games, because, you know, I've always been fascinated when I was an undergrad, I wrote some stuff about kind of like the experience of watching a horror movie versus the experience of playing a horror video game. And I think that there's such unique and different and complementary experiences. Um, I'm just kind of curious what what you were finding um, that drew you to horror video games in particular, and what has been sort of like an enduring connection um, for that genre of video games for you?
2: Yeah, so if anybody like follows me online or has read any of my writing, um, you would obviously would know that I am a huge Resident Evil fan. Um, I even wrote the Resident Evil Village review for Bloody Disgusting, self-plug right there. Um, but yeah, so it, it kind of started kind of around the same era. I got a Nintendo 64, and like one of the first games I got for it was Resident Evil 2. And uh, for the longest time, that was like one of my only games. So every time I sat down to play a video game, it was always that. And to me, it was kind of this thing that it's like, oh, it's like an interactive horror movie. Like I'm making the characters decisions. I'm having a more hands on approach, which I know some people don't like. Like I know people like, oh, I love horror movies, but I like can not absolutely do games like where it's interactive. But for me, it was, like, in a weird way, getting closer to a genre I loved um, in, like, a bizarre way. It's, like, I love these movies so much, I want to live in them. And that was, like, kind of my escape Mm -hmm. to, like, living in that world. So I just ended up growing obsessed with, like, horror video games as well. Like, I remember one time I went to Hollywood Video, and my rentals for that day were... God, I think they were Resident Evil Apocalypse and Doom 3 for the original Xbox. So, I was running games and movies like same time and just bouncing back and forth between them.
1: And of course, Resident Evil Apocalypse is the best Resident Evil movie, so of course you're watching the best one.
2: I'm watching the Resident Evil movie? Yeah, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> I I I knew you were going to get a kick out of that cuz I feel like every time uh every time i tweet about it you just hop in like oh apocalypse
1: (laughs) if if someone tweets about demon wind resident evil apocalypse or letter kenny i will be in the mentions it's like a calling signal Mm -hmm. it's like a dog whistle to not a whistle event if you
2: say listen you'll be proud of me resident evil apocalypse is no longer at the bottom of my resident evil movie list
1: i'll take it i will take any small victory i can achieve
2: final chapter is worse than apocalypse
1: absolutely <laughs> that over edited piece of shit is one of the worst movies that has ever ended a franchise or just existed
2: yeah because i i watched it for the first time pretty recently with the box set and then i was like oh maybe i was a little harsh on apocalypse
1: I will live that. And also actually going back to your point about playing uh, horror video games and the whole thing about putting yourself in the horror scenario and it being too much for people. You said that. And I thought about myself as a gamer uh, earlier in my age. And it was weird because I actually didn't own any horror video games on my consoles. But I thought about it and I only played like horror rail shooters. And like whenever I went into an arcade, I would look for the horror games. So like I would flock to Carnival. I would flock to House of the Dead. Those are the games I always played. And maybe that was because I'm in like a populated area and it's a shooter and there was more to it. But yeah, I actually did like kind of stay away from horror. As much as I stayed away from it in cinemas and as much as I wouldn't watch it, I think I did actually actively avoid it as a video gamer too. And now that you said that, I'm just like realizing that.
0: Well, let me ask Donato because we've never actually talked about this on the show. What um, you know, I've had the pleasure of getting killed by you many times in both Friday the 13th and Dead by Daylight. What were uh, what were like the first tour video games that you fell in love with?
1: I mean, the first ones I quote unquote fell in love with, I think about playing Resident Evil on GameCube. I think actually the first time I played it was when the remaster came out for GameCube and really kind of being caught up in the puzzle aspect of it. And all of a sudden that first zombie appears. And I, it you know, it naming Resident Evil as an influence is one of those things that like, yeah, duh, of course, it's one of the most popular video game uh, horror video game franchises, but if we're going to talk about horror gaming that still lends itself into like dead space that drew me in left or dead the experience of multiplayer is just one of the best horror multiplayer experiences so left or dead was Mm -hmm. a big influence but i do go back to house the dead in arcades because that was always my go-to i was always finding that and also the the lost world jurassic park uh arcade game where you would actually like get into it and it was just like kind of big rig that you would sit in and it was still like a rail shooter there's a few scenes of the velociraptors that scared the fuck out of me like I couldn't have the blinds closed on the side because I'm like no open the blinds mom like screw this
2: so Donato are you excited for the House of the Dead remake that they're doing
1: I, I am excited for anything House of the Dead related I even own the UA Bowl House of the Dead movie
2: oh okay yeah that's connected to what we're talking about today it
1: very sure. much is oh listen I've, I've seen the bowl I, I have circled the bowl if, if we can say it
0: that way it's funny the way that, you know, we talk about our taste in films and how different they are, but like, I wonder how much of that is owed to our video games. Cause you're talking all the stuff that you're loving is like rail shooters and like shoot 'em up kind of stuff. And the game that broke me, the first game I fell in love with was silent hill Two, which is like the epitome of all of my tastes about like moody and slow and grief driven and grief fueled. Like our taste in horror video games perfectly parallels our taste in horror movies. Gosh, aren't we predictable?
2: Yeah, I was about to say, I was like, Silent Hill 2 is like, total opposite. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's great. It's the it's my favorite, favoritest thing ever, and one half of the Silent Hill movie is the greatest horror film I've ever seen. Um, but, okay, talking talking a little bit about that and, and video games and horror and yada yada, uh, Raina, I'm curious at what point you decided that you wanted to start writing about film, because you've been doing that for a bit now. Um, Obviously, you... Donato ran down some of your publications at the beginning, which are some, you know, impressive horror publications. Like those are those are the ones you want to write for when you get into this gig. So I'm curious what the beginning of that was for you when you thought, hey, I want to start like jotting down some ideas about the things that I'm watching. I feel like I have a perspective that I want to offer.
2: So it it was kind of the thing where like I I came out as trans kind of like late 2019, early 2020, and it was the thing where it's like i want to rebuild myself like i want to do what i want to do like i just like life's too short so i was like mm-hmm. you know what i'm like tired of just talking about movies in my circle of friends i'm gonna start writing down these ideas and see if i can write for some of my favorite sites so pretty much i kind of wrote for free for a, a smaller site and then just like one day i think uh I interacted with John from Bloody Disgusting on Twitter, and I think I I just tweeted out like a random thought, and he replied, "Hey, I would publish this piece." So from there, I started writing from Bloody Disgusting, and then just there from making connects online, just and just kind of like not being an asshole online, and kind of knowing mm. what I'm like talking about, just kind of make those connections and kind of just put forth the the work like they say like if you do what you love it never feels like work and that's not true with writing like it does feel like work when you write yeah. <laughs> like I, I i don't i don't believe anyone it's like oh yeah no writing for me is just like not work and it's like no nah, when i'm done with a piece i need to sleep for like a day and a half <laughs> like my mm-hmm. brain is exhausted um so yeah i guess to be honest, I, I just feel like pretty grateful that I am able to write for these sites because never in a million years did I think, Oh, I'd be writing for like bloody disgusting and Fangoria like, and the fact that it did happen is kind of surreal to me now. So I'm still kind of accepting that fact (laughs) that I have those bylines.
0: Yeah. It's, it's very heartening. I think we all, we all kind of get into the rote business of describing Twitter as an awful hell site. And, you know, to be fair, it is a lot of the time, but there are opportunities like the one that you described where you said, you know, you had a really good engagement with um, John Squires. And it seems like everybody has really good engagements with John. That's just sort of his his MO. Um, But, you know, I do, I love to hear those kind of stories where you have an idea and you're tweeting about it and somebody's like, yeah, write that, write that for me, pitch me. I want to, I want to hear that idea. I want to turn it into something. Because it, it can be it can be frustrating sometimes when you see people that are just like spinning gold on Twitter for free, right? Like throwing great ideas out into the void and you're like, oh no, save that one for you. Turn that one into a piece. So when that actually mm-hmm. does happen and someone recognize that, recognizes that and says, I want that article, I want you to flesh that out, that makes me feel good. It makes me, you know, it rewards people for being able to like, you know, take that, take a, the kernel of a good idea, plant a tree and come up with like, you know, a thousand words, two thousand words on that very topic
2: yeah and same thing kind of happened with the uh, fangoria it's like just one day out of the blue i sent phil a dm and i was just like hey say i wanted to pitch fango how would i go about that <laughs> and then he got me in touch with meredith and the rest is history um mm-hmm. so like pretty much i think my best advice as a writer is like kind of don't be an asshole online because everyone's watching <laughs>
0: That's super um, underrated advice. And and it, it's advice that there's a lot of people that are like, don't be an asshole, but they're always kind of assholes. So they're definitely of the like, I got mine, fuck you school. But I have to say, Reina, that you are definitely somebody who practices what they preach because you are not an asshole on Twitter. Like every thread that I see you jumped into, you're basically like, I love this movie. Or like, this is awesome. Or like, not in an overly, like not in a blindly positive way, but like, you're just always having quality engagements and conversations with folks. And it's one of those things where like, I, you know, I, uh, that sticks out to me. That's something that I remember. And, you know, when we're talking about picking writers and, and, you know, the process of wanting to work with folks, those kind of that positivity that you put into that system is something that I remember. And it makes me want to work with you in the future.
2: Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. It, it just kind of comes from my thought process of like, at the end of the day, like, yeah, I'll tweet something negative about something I don't like. I always end up deleting it by the end of the day. Cause it's like I'd rather give my energy to something I genuinely like, rather than kind of tear down something else. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. like, you know, I got some thoughts about today's movie, so you'll you you guys will get to hear the negative side of me. So,
0: well, that's okay. You picked it, so you're totally allowed to be negative because yeah. you come into it. You basically are prefacing it by saying, out of all the movies in the world, I chose this one, and also here's some critiques.
2: Oh, I, I got my reasons for picking this one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And we want, hey, this
2: is
1: why we brought you on here. And I mean, you know, going back to that point, too, and to call back to our episode uh, our last episode, I was going to say last week, but, you know, it's a two week thing and we just post randomly. So, yeah, the last episode we recorded, we talked about won't
0: even last episode we recorded because this is not even going to be the last episode is going to be probably a special episode. That's right. This is
1: so confusing. In any case, when Amelia returned, we talked about the business side of things we talked about conflating the idea and romanticizing the idea that what we do is some, you know, impenetrable creative industry Mm -hmm. and it's dying because of the business side. But what you have to remember is that this still is an industry and a business that runs in that way. And what you both are talking about here is be nice on Twitter and good things will come to you. And the thing that that boils down to is, well, yeah, everyone is watching. And why would an editor want to work with someone who is constantly negative and constantly a problem online versus the person who is not a problem and they can get along with? Like, you still have to think about those things and you can be the best writer in the world. But if you are a constant piece of shit, that doesn't mean you're going to get automatically hired Like, like you have to think about these things.
0: So last question, then, before we go into the film of the day, I'm curious, Reina, as a film critic and as a games critic, generally speaking, what are your feelings on the state of the video game adaptation?
2: Oh, you guys can't see it, but I like cracked my knuckles (laughs) right when you asked that question. (laughs) Um, So I believe we are about to enter the golden age of the video game adaptation if it hasn't already started already um i am a chit i champion the sonic the hedgehog film and uh werewolves within as two of not only like the greatest video game movies of all time but they're great movies in their own right um historically video game movies like let's be honest not great um they're fun for nostalgia's sake and just because some sometimes they're batshit insane but I think going forward, I think studios and creatives are realizing that you need to apply care to this property that people have this like literal hands-on connection with. Um, like, like literally every bit of news I'm seeing about like the last of us is like, Oh yeah. They're, they're trying not to mess that one up. Like they're trying to do Mm -hmm. that one, like a hundred percent wholeheartedly. Um, So so, yeah, I used to be really against the video game adaptation going like, oh, why are they doing this? They're just going to fuck it up. And then now to the point that I'm like, you know what, like, let's do it. Let's see it. Just because I'm also like very tired of like superheroes and capes.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, there's two parts of the conversation as well, where number one is I don't think there have been as many terrible video game adaptations as people like to list out. I, listen, mm-hmm. I fucking love Doom. I champion Doom to the deaths. I made a drinking game for it for Dread Central. I think like Doom is a legitimately fun movie if you look at it as an adaptation of a video game. And you go down the list, there are a lot of examples out there that I will champion that people won't. Sonic the Hedgehog, I, I agree with you 100%. I think Sonic is a great video game adaptation and is one of the newer ones I think we're going to get some good stuff out of Resident Evil coming up or at least I hope so we do have a lot of these opportunities for the video game adaptation to take a new turn and the other weird part of it is I keep having the conversation that the best video game adaptations we have are not video games properties themselves like I look at like Scott Pilgrim and I look at Hardcore Henry and there are a bunch of movies out there that have created the video game atmosphere so much better than any video game movies and i think that's because a lot of video game movies try to take themselves too seriously at points and not all of them i I know that does not apply to all but the problem that i think a lot of video game adaptations have is they try to make this cinematic experience that almost doesn't want to acknowledge it's a video game movie they want to be better and they want to uh, stay away from that stigma where again something like Scott Pilgrim or Hardcore Henry is aping off so many video game tropes and it becomes such a better movie for it so it's this weird conversation to have where it's like yeah the games influenced by video games but aren't based on a property do a way better job of letting themselves be video game movies than the actual adaptations
2: that's that's a super interesting point you bring up. Yeah, because um, I think the antithesis of that, like those examples that you gave of like embracing like the video gaminess of like it all um, the antithesis of that is like something like Assassin's Creed, where it like wants you so hard to forget it's a video game like it wants you to forget so hard. Like it's like, no, take it serious. We're like this like art house, like movie, like like, even though we're not really set in the past, like, I, yeah, no, I I a hundred percent agree with you. Like if in the new resident evil movie, somebody like uses an herb to heal, I'm going to like scream out in the theater and probably cheer. <laughs> Give us the herbs. Yeah, <laughs> they need them. They need them. But, um, hundred percent agree with you. Another movie that springs to mind where you say embracing the video gamingness of it all is like a uh, edge of tomorrow. With the mm-hmm. whole like oh like dying and like like you respawning and going right back into it, <laughs> definitely I think video games need to embrace.
0: Well, speaking of video game adaptations, um, I want to leave everybody on what with one thought, and then we're going to go into the second half of the episode. And that thought is both Donato and I gave Sonic the Hedgehog a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. How cool is that? That's that tells you all you need to know about that film. Synergy and on it's perfect synergy for the maths. Our weakness is uh, is lovable cartoon hedgehogs. And on that note, um, talking about Sonic the Hedgehog, we're going to jump to a uh, a, a very obvious parallel, which is blood rain, colon, deliverance. So we'll be back in just a second. You know, Donato and I always talk about the fact that we can't do this podcast without the support of our patrons and our listeners. And I think that's true. And I think the best way for us to prove that it's true is to make Donato read the weird shit that our patrons send in. Does that sound Does that sound fair, Donato? Does that sound right?
1: I mean, I don't know if fair is the word I would use for our listeners. Okay. <laughs> I don't, but I will say, uh, yes, I, I'm going to read some things that are requested. So, do you want me to start with our first one that I should explain before I get into it?
0: Yeah, if you have to explain it, that's always a good sign.
1: Of course, it's good. Uh, so our Patreon, our Patreon patron, I guess would be the way to say that, Mr. Luke is gifting his, once again, Luke is very good at whenever, you know, they want to make sure somebody else gets to share the love or they don't have anything th- off the top of their head. Luke said, all right, reach out, let somebody else promote their thing. So I thought immediately of my previous podcast co-host, Mr. Kieran Fisher. We used to talk about Christmas horror movies on our Christmas horror dedicated podcast. We no longer do, but Kieran does have some cool things working up uh, called Council of Zoom, And it is a website, it is a podcast, YouTube channel. They are essentially trying to do the same thing that we are doing at Certified Forgotten, just on their own terms. They go broader outside of horror. They just want to, they want to put the articles out that they want to read. So Kieran has given a bumper to promote (laughs) Council of Zoom. I want to say that again. This is to promote Council of Zoom. I will now read verbatim. My name is Matt Donato, and I'm a naughty little elf. In fact, I'm so naughty that Santa won't let me near his factory. But what makes me so naughty, you ask? <laughs> for a start, I have committed crimes against good taste by watching every Christmas horror movie ever made. I also love to wear tank tops to show off my muscular arms. This elf works hard for his th- this physique and loves to flaunt it. However, one naughty elf who doesn't have a perfect physique is my fellow jingle boy Kieran, who most of you will know as HairEverywhere underscore on the old Twitter. But he does have a website and YouTube channel called Council of Zoom, which publishes features and videos on movies, TV shows, video games, and all that jazz. And you should totally check it out. And if you're a freelance writer who's looking to get your name out there, you should get in touch. They pay everything. I, They pay and everything, <laughs> I guess pay. that should be. They pay and everything. I'm okay. going to go with that. Now, you're probably thinking, hey, that's a stupid name for a website. And it is. Kieran and the gang still have no idea how they came up with the name or why they actually registered it. But don't let the silly name put you off. The site has some great writers on board, most of whom you'll all know from Twitter. So check it out, and have a Merry Christmas in August.
0: You know, Donato, I don't like to think of you hosting podcasts with other people. It makes me insanely jealous, and long messages like that are uh, are part of the reason why.
1: It's, you know, I miss my Kieran. I must admit, he is one of my shiny little lights on Twitter.
0: Well, Kieran, thank you. Thank you for making Matt read that. Um, I don't have anything else to say, man.
1: Council Zoom, don't forget it.
0: Okay, and we have one, um, kind of in honor of, of my mother as well, who grew up on drive-in movies. Th- I think I've talked about this before in sort of the San Francisco market. So in honor of mom, I want to share a question for you, Donato, which is what is the best movie that you've ever seen or the best drive-in movie theater experience you've ever had?
1: What is the best I've seen at a The drive-in? best
0: drive-in movie theater experience you've ever had?
1: Yeah, I don't have many but what I have seen in a drive-in, <laughs> I I don't know why this stands out, but I saw one of the Tomb Raider movies in a drive-in theater, and it really is one of the only times I've ever ventured out to one. I'm actually, I'm racking my brain trying to think of what I saw with Tomb Raider. It was some dumb comedy that did not register, but like, we were little kids, we were in the Adirondacks, and my, my mom and my friend's mom wanted to go to the, to the drive-in movie theater just to experience it, and... You know, me and my friend went along, and this is still at a young age. So, the only two things playing were some dumb comedy and Tomb Raider. So, I got to see the first Tomb Raider <laughs> in a drive-in, and it's it's a memory.
0: And to, to answer that question, um, and Marilyn Monagle, thank you all as always for being a, a patron of this website. Um, best drive-in experience I've ever had is probably Unhinged. Not because there was anything particularly unique about the experience itself, but you've never seen a more gracious and forgiving group of people as everyone trying to maneuver their way out of the parking lot after the movie was over. I've never seen more Texans let other Texans cut in line. I've never seen more people give courtesy taps and like let people pull in. It was just like that beautiful moment after everybody watched a movie about road rage. It was the most polite driving I've ever seen before in my life. And I love it for that. And Unhinged is kind of fun for what it is. The fear is real.
1: I mean, that is very, when you see Russell Crowe, just go ham on, on roadsters nobody wants to be the next russell crowe
0: that is it thank you as always and uh yeah let's get back to the show hey welcome back so today on the show we're going to be talking about a sequel uh, a video game adaptation and a little movie that i like to call because it's its title blood rain deliverance so you know what uh there's a There's a pretty good synopsis online. So normally I like to come up with something and and write my own, but I'm just going to read this because this tells you everything you need to know know, know about the film. Sexy half vampire rain moseys into the wild west to find blood sucking Billy the kid and his gang of ruthlessly, ruthlessly terrorizing the small town of deliverance. That's your plot. Um, That's pretty much all you need to know. It is a sequel to the popular question mark. You would bowl film, I guess Mm -hmm. popular is a word that you might use there. Uh, it, it has some of the weirdest casting you'll see, even for like a direct-to-video video game sequel. It's got the creepy kid um, from A Christmas Story as the main vampire. It's got a very early career Michael Eklund, who you'll know from practically every DTV or low-budget horror movie of the last 20 years. And it doesn't even bring back the original, the original rain because you know you can't you can't afford uh, can't afford an actor like that twice out. But as much as the original film with a cast that includes Michelle Rodriguez and Ben Kingsley and Michael Madsen and a bunch of others was sort of Uwe attempt, from my understanding, because I haven't seen it, but it was Uwe attempt to do like a big budget blockbuster type film. This is more of a movie that knows its lane, exists in its lane, and tries to deliver that balance of horror and western that very very few films. Get right very very few so blood rain 2 or blood rain, blood rain deliverance is our show and rain i want to start with the not rain why am i saying that i want to start with you um i want to talk a little bit about your selection of this film because you said a minute ago that you had some uh, you had reasons for picking this one so what you got for us
2: so reason number one i picked this one in particular is because blood rain one has too many reviews on Rotten tomatoes <laughs> okay <laughs> i think it's got something like eight. like when donato asked me i was like oh i know exactly and then i looked and i was like shit too many and i was like you know what right.
0: <laughs> fair totally fair like legitimately fair logic i have no complaints there
1: also actually blood rain has 54 reviews i believe because i went to look that shit up and i wanted to see the blood rain uh breakdown and it's something like a four percent rating on rotten tomatoes with like 50 something reviews
2: oh okay i think i counted eight on the main page like at first yeah. and i was like oh wait too many mm. wow 54 holy shit 54 critics uh gave well we haven't even talked about day. Day.
0: blood rain three like the reich the III third world reich. war two <laughs> yeah the third reich or whatever it's called but i digress
2: yeah i think actually the third one might have zero reviews on it that was almost my second choice <laughs> So that was the main reason I chose it, but also because I wanted to talk about, I was like, well, shitty uh, mid-2000s horror movie, what can I talk about? That also like crosses paths with what I'm into, and it was like, oh, video games, and who else would make shitty video game adaptations in the mid-2000s besides the man himself? You a bull. Yeah.
0: It was it. Yeah, it wasn't a path that a lot of other filmmakers were interested in treading in the early 2000s. I think when you when you write the history of video game adaptations in like 20 years or so, it'll be interesting to see if our opinions of you have changed Um, because he was single handedly (laughs) keeping the video game adaptation alive for a good decade pretty much by himself.
2: He really was. The man did a Far Cry movie randomly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not only his video game adaptations, you have to basically, Far Cry is in there, but if you're going back, I mean, you have Alone in the Dark, you have House of the Dead, you have Blood Rain, you have Postal? Like Even he adapted Postal, which is basically Mm -hmm. about somebody just going maniac and no one besides Yuval could do crazy shit like that and I believe, didn't uh, Mr. Monagle correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't uh, Brock Wilbur write a Uable, U-able kind of like book?
0: Oh, yes, he did. He wrote an entire book. There's a, and I can't remember the publisher, but there's a, a publisher that deals with like short collections of essays and fiction about video games. And Brock has 100%, Brock Wilbur has 100% written a book about Postal, the video game.
1: Right. So it is just it's- bonkers to see Uable. In, I'm going to say Blood Rain is one of the more restrained adaptations. And I say that like wincing and I say that kind of laughing to myself. But it is because he's actually trying to stay with the period and trying to stay with at least a constant through line where House of the Dead is like fucking everywhere.
2: <laughs> it really is. Um, the man was making a, not necessarily good choices, but he was making interesting choices in the 2000s with his movies. Um, I think... I s- so when i watch this uh side note by the way if brock hears this i have that postal book on my nightstand i'm waiting to finish <laughs> the game before i read through it um but no spoilers yeah you definitely don't wa- want to
0: spoil yourself on that
2: <laughs> yeah no i gotta finish the game but it's it's you know it's it's hard i might crank it down to easy <laughs> so i watched blood rain one and two back to back this week and it was the thing where like I'm like halfway through the third first one and I was like, did a human edit this? Like it like has no flow. Like it just jumps around like crazy, even more so in deliverance that I'm like, oh, what is going on? I feel like I'm watching like a fever dream of a movie.
0: Yeah, so for those that have not, seen the first film in particular let's talk about that one because i will full up admit that i had not seen it and the reason i had not seen it is because it never looked interesting and the reason it never looked interesting is because i didn't realize it had michelle rodriguez so i will be correcting that at some point in the future but reyna i want to hear a little bit about the 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 big budget version of this right because that was kind of he got everything he wanted when he made that adaptation so what is the experience of watching blood rain
2: so So Blood Rain, for those that don't know, the first one is Uwe Boll's uh, attempt at blockbuster filmmaking. And I say blockbuster with the biggest quotations ever. Um, Side note, 13-year-old me was very excited for that because that movie came out on my birthday. I went to the theater on my 13th birthday to go see it. Um, And it's like one of the only movies he has where it's got like real actors. It's got like Michael Madsen. It's got Michelle Rodriguez with these awful blue contacts in um Woof. and yeah and it's just like a traditional like oh a group of vampire hunters like run around this like like in like i think the 1600s run around looking for this half vampire to hunt them down help her help them hunt down the big bad vampire played by ben kingsley who someone pointed out today on twitter is like sitting down for 80 percent of the movie and it's just like jumping around so much. I think I read online. Somebody said there's a drinking game for blood rain. It says drink every time Michael Madsen looks like he gives a shit. And it's good because you could drive home after because he never gives a shit once in that movie. <laughs> uh, I would say that is the experience of watching blood rain. Uh, if you want to see like weird, like sis dude, lesbianism and like watery looking blood. Um, by all means go for it. Uh other than that, I I personally don't think Blood Rain 1 has anything going for it. I think two is a little bit stronger just because of its batshit insane premise. Like you said, like it knows what lane it's in, whereas the first one it's like, ooh, big blockbuster, Uwe bull time.
1: And at least we do get buckets of gore in the first one I I ain't gonna discredit any of that and it's it is that super liquidy super getting ejected from a cannon like in front of the actor so he's just trying to time basically like a blow cannon to the swipe of a sword just to make it look it's half like it's happening at the same time but like people's bodies just explode with blood and I, I understand the name of the movie is blood rain and that's referencing the character and all that stuff but there is a ton of gore and there is a ton of Really interesting practical effects that UA is going for in his blockbuster spend all mentality, which, again, he didn't really get that chance to do it on other films. He didn't get that chance to really do it again on House of the Dead, where it's a zombie movie. And I don't remember it being particularly gruesome, except for like a few choice scenes where he was able to basically wring out some of that gore that he wanted to. But Blood Rain is is so over-the-top gory and grotesque to be a period piece that's medieval and then it has this outro scene where it's, it's a montage, it's not even a scene Blood Rain ends with you a bull showing you everything that you've just seen, he basically recaps every single death in the movie chronologically so the finale of the film after the climax has happened and the credits should be rolling is a highlight reel of every death with this like slow, somber music over it. And you just sit there for a few minutes going, is this movie over? Or like, what is happening? Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it,
1: it's That's the fever dream. That's the fever dream that Raina mentioned before.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it really is. And I think it was the thing where like, I'm convinced Uwe Boll, when he does these video game adaptations, he plays like five five minutes of the video game and goes like, Unti, yes, that's what we're doing. Um, my terrible German accent. Um, he's the sexy vampire. <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah. she's the sexy vampire dis- dismemberments and, and blood. And it's like, oh, okay. Um, Uwe, you're aware that the first video game is set during World War II, right? <laughs> so it's like,
0: he got there. Ev- yeah. Hey, it took him three movies, but he got there eventually.
2: Yeah, he he got there. So in a weird way, I'm like, oh no, that third movie is technically the most accurate of all three. But all righty, then. <laughs> I well, I actually that
1: was my question to you, Raina. I, I mean, you've played the games. So you you now own three copies, as you so proudly display of Blood Rain mm-hmm. Two. So I, the question to me is are these faithful at all to the games or like you said is this really just the third movie that you nails the time period that the games are set in
2: so the first video game is set during World war Two and basically is about rain going after this evil nazi scientist who's like trying to raise like a vampire army okay just think of it kind of like a female blade video game almost okay Um, right down to the fact that she's half vampire and then the second game is in modern times so i was like i do not know where uve Boll got any of these ideas for like a western and a medieval movie but whatever we'll roll with it um the third movie is accurate time period for the first game but not accurate to the events at all um, the video games do have a lot of dismemberment and blood there's literally a button you press to like feed on someone to gain health back <laughs> so like she'll I- jump up on somebody and like bite them in the neck and gain health back
1: yeah so he got that part right because that is heavily heavily part of all his films uh, but it's it's because again you say that and it's just so interesting that you mention. does UA even watch or sorry play the games to get like get these ideas or does he just get the character want to do things and i think of the tremors franchise and other franchises that have tried to do different period aspects and uh looking at like i think tremors and like from dusk till dawn both try the western and they're they're original ips so they can do that they can have fun going to different periods and they can have their wild west showdown it's just so interesting to put rain in there when rain has been in either modern times or world war Two, and he's like nah we're gonna do cowboys
2: <laughs> it's like <but> why yeah. <laughs> what what are we doing <laughs> yeah it's like oh rain has been like in europe her entire life until the second one that's modern times and like america but it's like nah she's going after billy the kid and he's he's hungarian vampire and it's like wait what <laughs>
1: That's right, Billy the Kid's accent. Yeah, so let's just get to number two now. Let's get to Blood Rain Deliverance because I do need to talk about Zach Ward's accent that's going on in there. And Zach Ward is basically Yubel's uh, muse. I think it's him and Brendan Fletcher that end up in so many of his movies.
0: And Michael Paré. He's and and too. Michael Paré, yes. Yep. So
1: that is true. So he's, he has three muses and they're all them. But Zach Ward's, I don't know. He sounded Hungarian sometimes, Italian mm-hmm. other times, German other times. And I was like, what are we going for with Billy the Kid being this?
2: Yeah, the most one of the most famous like American outlaws like legends, and it's like, oh, he's like this weird Hungarian Italian vampire. I always find it funny when I see Zach Warren something because I just think of his character in Resident Evil Apocalypse, uh, how he all played Nikolai, <laughs> yeah. all the time, and he had a he had a terrible accent in that movie too. <laughs> yeah. Everyone uh, is just
1: forcing Zach Ward to do accents, and he's like, why I can't do them
2: yeah it's like what is like a christmas story the one movie where he didn't have to do an accent but i digress um yeah this movie makes uh some interesting choices uh for one yeah the western setting it's like on paper on paper i will say this vampires in the old west is a fucking cool idea like i like like american Mm -hmm. vampire and all that and it's like that's a cool concept um, but when you leave it in the hands of someone like Bull, uh, it's like, oh, is this a movie? Um, all right, whatever. This feels like <laughs> I texted my friend and he was like, this looks like an episode of Legends of Tomorrow.
1: It Very well could be. I'm going through Legends right now, and that's actually a very good comparison. Like, oh, this is just an episode of Legends of Tomorrow. This is... <laughs> but, and, and, you know, it might be better than Gala Walkers, though. I, I can say that much.
2: Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that one in a while
0: this is something that we just keep going to and going to as horror fans. I feel like we are desperate for a really good horror Western and we just don't, we just haven't gotten it right. There are probably three at the top of the list, like period piece Westerns. You could do bone Tomahawk. You could do ravenous for sure. You could do maybe the wind, which I think is a really, a really good horror Western, even though it's not exactly a horror horror Western, but you know, I have, I have spent so many times like, throwing myself against the dead birds and the burrowers of the horror genre, trying to like scratch the itch for a horror Western. And it's interesting to see that this in a lot of ways, I know it's still you have a, you have a bull. So we've still got like that, the whole thing going on, but in a lot of ways, I actually think I would have to put this in the upper half of horror Westerns that I've seen. And I don't know if that's just a function of the fact that a lot of them fuck up what should be a slam dunk premise or just like none of them have used vampires before, which is just sort of like, come on guys. That's like you said, Reyna, low hanging fruit. But I was, I'm not going to say that this is a particularly great movie, but there were a lot of elements about the vampire horror Western thing that I was like, this is actually pretty functional. Like this works. This, this holds together in a kind of a surprising way.
2: It, it, it's like a movie where like it's concepts. They, they, they weren't, surprisingly well i'll always say this um i think the blood rain movies are some of Uwe bull's like strongest movies which you know i'm sure that's not easy to do uh well i'm sure that is easy to do but whatever Mm -hmm. um there is some cool ideas running in this entire trilogy i like the idea of like hey we're gonna follow this like ageless vampire like through multiple time periods and each movie is gonna be a different one Like Mm -hmm. on paper, that's a killer concept. And I'm sure like if they were able to pull that off, right, it could be like fantastic to go back to your horror Western thing. How there hasn't been a good one. Ironically, the greatest horror Western in my book is a video game. It's a red dead Redemption's undead nightmare.
0: Hmm.
1: I was actually going to bring that up. I was actually literally going to say one of my favorite horror Westerns is the red dead Redemption (laughs) version where the zombies come. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's 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 crazy that like, oh, well, is this like only a concept that a certain medium can pull off? And it and it kind of just brings up that interesting thought of like, oh, are there certain concepts that only video games or movies could pull off and not the other?
0: Well, it's you know, the the, the funny thing about that is that the tropes kind of the the critical space of the horror or the Western is so well established by now. So for a smart filmmaker, it's not like you have to create kind of an original world. You basically get to just engage in a dialogue with what people expect to see in a Western. And I actually think that one of the things I liked about this film was that um, Bull does a really good job with this, with the idea of um, vampires in the railway, because the railway has always been an allegory in Westerns about modernity, about you know um, colonialism, white man's encroaching on traditionally indigenous spaces of the American West, uh, there's a lot of like there, the the industrialization of the United States is such a powerful metaphor that a lot of filmmakers of the years have worked in a lot of different ways and kind of turning that into a literal blood sucking element that is just like spreading like blood cells across the railways of America as we spread across the country. I was like, yeah, damn, man, that's good shit. Keep doing that. Does it pay it off? No, but it's it, it creates this scenario, I think, where again, doubles down on that frustration element that there haven't been a lot of good horror Westerns because it's all, like, it's all just right there in your face. like the, the themes that you can play with, the ways that you can layer in social commentary on top of genre tropes, which is what the horror genre does so well, what horror, horror filmmakers do so well, the Western it just like puts that right in front of you. And, and it's so amazing to me that more people haven't kind of engaged with it like they could.
1: But then you do that with Yuobol's dialogue, and mm-hmm. you have Michael Eklund's preacher.
0: I mean, you will almost... hey, hey. be nice. Don't say shit about Michael Eklund. I love me some Michael. Eklund. I
1: love no, 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 I actually do adore Michael Eklund. I think he's okay. one of the better character actors we have right now. we in- yes. inside the genre, outside the genre. He's been doing things. Hell like yes. These there's movies that run on Eklund where there's one called Poker Night and he's just this fantastic little character at a poker table and. The way that he's able to play skeezy and under and underbelly characters is amazing. So, and here he's playing a priest who's also a grifter, who's also a sex addict, whatever you want to get into. He's just everything that the cloth does not represent. And Mm -hmm. Bull's sense of humor is having him say things like Jesus titty fucking Christ in a Western, which I don't know if that would be in their vocabulary no matter what, but we're talking about a you-a-ball movie. So you get a lot of dialogue that is just so not thought out and crass and blunt in the wrong way, because that's what ball finds funny. And it doesn't always translate. And that, like, that's why you can have what model is talking about, where you can have that great colonialization theme and use vampires to bring that out. The metaphor is strong. And then it, one of his zingers come out and it just kills it. Like it absolutely just destroys mm-hmm. the
2: mood. <laughs> I think Uwe Bull was just kind of obsessed with like making, Oh, american cowboy movie with like sexy vampire girl like at the end of the day because it's like there are these interesting ideas at play but he's also probably just like oh i'm going to do this great american western movie and like do it better than other filmmakers because you know like his his cocky attitude he's like oh i'm the greatest filmmaker alive like this will be the western magnum opus
1: Maybe that's what he was using his Blood Rain franchise for. He was tackling every subgenre he could to stake his claim mm. and make it his own. But, you know, Mo- Monoglo, to your point, there is another arc that I like in the Blood Rain Deliverance film specifically. We're talking about the Wild West. And we have a reporter from the East who comes over to basically write about the Wild West and be like, I want to write about the action stories. And, you know, he's mm-hmm. basically fantasizing the Wild West and wants to turn it into something of entertainment when it's a way of life for people. And I think there's something interesting about that character who Mm. is treating all these townsfolk who live and live this, breathe this, and it is their life, and he treats them as a vanity project. And the way that evolves over time and how he comes to write his story and become enveloped in the town, I also think that's a good arc. Like It's a good good little note that he adds in there.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that um, that character. And I like kind of the 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 almost oh, so close to making a real, real point with the idea of like, what is what does it mean? What does journalist, journalistic independence mean? Um, and the fact that eventually he picks up arms to protect the town, which is a statement kind of the in its own way, not unlike some of the other, like the mission and things like that about pacifism and where you get involved, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to give him too much credit because it's not like the movie actually goes there. But there's definitely that thing that's kind of in the background playing a little bit. Uh, I would also like to point out that this is a Rob Hunter five-star film because not only does one child die badly, but two children die really badly, at least on screen, two children die badly. Um, And as we all know, if Rob Hunter watches a film where a child dies, he'll give that five stars. And, you know, we joke about that a little bit, but like, it's actually, it's kind of cool. You know, the whole conversation we're having about like, should, who's at risk in a horror movie, who should be dangerous, you know, an offshoot of sort of the fear street conversation about people being shocked at the character that that they like died. It's nice to watch a horror film that kills kids because it kind of lets you know that there is like that anybody could go in any given moment, at least theoretically, again, I'm engaging more with the principles of the film than I am the actual film that I watched. But I will say, I just want to back up and say that I agree 100% with you on Eklund Donato. And this is, I think, one of the joys of watching movies in this kind of like direct-to-video tier is that if you do this for long enough, and certainly, Donato, you've done this much longer than any of us, I think Reyna and I combined, you know, the the a performance, an actor who pops up um, for like 15 20% of the movie that you weren't expecting, like somebody that you really like that can kind of shine a little bit in a role, can be make or break for whether or not like the movie was a complete waste of your time, or if you actually ended up liking a little bit. And Michael Eklund has always been, always been the evil Star Trek version of Ethan Hawke. Like he's always been that guy and he's so delightful in doing that. And it's, he's fun in this, like no caveats, no, no qualifiers. No, like, Oh, but for bowl, like Michael Eklund is just good in this movie because he is playing exactly the sort of character that a really talented character actor can play in a, you have a bowl film. So it's fun to watch him in this. And it's something like that that just like makes a, a movie that otherwise doesn't hang together. Something, you know, if somebody asked me, what did you think? My wife asked me what I thought of this after I was done. And instead of being like, Oh, it was bad or it didn't work. I was like, meh, And a big chunk of that meh comes directly from Eklund and watching him have fun in the role. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I think it's great to see Michael Paré pop up in all three installments as different characters. And then they just mm-hmm. never acknowledge it. <laughs> Every time I saw him pop up, it was like, Oh, I, I forget he's in these, but whatever, because I'm a big like Eddie and the Cruisers fan. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I know that's a random movie to love. But every time like he pops up and something now, I'm like, yo, Eddie lives.
1: And Pari does a lot of indie horror. So <laughs> you're probably saying that yep. a
2: lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I find myself saying it way more than I should. I'm probably the person saying Eddie lives the most in 2021. <laughs> yeah.
1: You've taken that crown. You're that champion.
2: I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, I I just wanted to bring up I, I I told you briefly about this Donato, but were you guys aware that Uwe Boll shot a shot-for-shot remake parody of the third movie, like the very no. next year? Yeah, he did a movie called Blubberella, and it oh, makes yes. the I've heard that. It makes the character of Rain an obese woman. And it's a shot for shot parody of the third Blood Rain movie using the same sets, crew, everything.
1: He is an interesting human being that lives on this world with all of us and for some reason gets to do these things. I mean, you just look at how many movies he's produced, directed, mm-hmm. and I know he self-funds a lot of his own stuff. So, like, God bless you go out there and you're doing your own thing. But, man, you think about what that money could have been put towards besides his movies, and it is a little disheartening.
2: (laughs) I was looking at the back of the Blood Rain 2 box just now and in big bold letters on the back it says with participation of the Canadian film or video production tax credit.
0: I think that there is something this like whatever however we feel we said earlier that Bull is probably somebody that will exist in the history of video game adaptations. I also feel like you probably could write about Bull pretty heavily in terms of like navigating the tax credit the Hollywood and state and country tax credit and licensing of the last two decades, because the man, whatever you think about his films, is the master at finding all of those financial kickbacks and opportunities with different, you know, uh, regional or even national film credits in other countries or credits here in the United States. The guy is incredibly gifted at sort of navigating and slipping through all of those and if that means that his movies are partially tax shelters, like, okay, you know, there are worse things to do than make bad fantasy genre films with your illegally gotten gains. If you're somebody who's funding his films, like, that is a pretty benign way in the dumpster fire that is 2021 for you to be trying to bury a couple million dollars a year.
2: Wholeheartedly agree. Um, yeah. in a a way, I almost miss his filmmaking, just because like, you know, like like, I don't want to say they're fun to shit on, but like, they're always interesting to watch, whether they be just ghastly awful, or just like, or like even Blood Rain 2 Deliverance, it's like, hey, there's some cool ideas at play. I wonder what could have been.
1: Yeah, and yeah, you're right. Snark aside, I mean, I do admit when I might hate something, I might despise a studio project or the way things are marketed, all these things. I, but we also understand the other side of the coin. And we also understand that sometimes the most infuriating thing that we hate on a level of acceptance is still a brilliant move. And it still deserves the credit when you look at you a bowl and you say, okay, you've made a bunch of movies that people hate that like, it's just a thing it's out there. No, a lot of people do not like them, but at the same very much time, He did go out, made a ton of movies that he wanted to make, use the system to his advantage. And that's not in a confrontational way. That is literally he did use the system to his advantage to make his movies. And that is also kind of admirable. That's also a dude going out there and doing exactly what he wants to do with his life and accomplishing it and not letting anything step in his way. And also one of my favorite videos to watch is Jeff Snyder puking on the side of a road because he's been hit in the face or stomach somewhere so hard by you a bull. So he did give us that.
0: Yeah, I it, take back every bad thing I've said. You a bull. This is a great movie. Four out of five stars.
2: It, it It's weird. The, the video game adaptation to five star restaurant owner pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> An entrepreneur
1: uh, for the ages, I would say.
2: Yeah, he's he's admirable. Like I would I would legit watch a very well put together documentary on him.
1: Oh, in a heartbeat. That would be so engaging. And also, mm-hmm. how has he not turned one of his movies into a restaurant by now? Like, that's what I that's the next level of Yuval that I need. Postal
2: the restaurant. Oh, God. <laughs> blood. No,
1: I, I want blood rain in the restaurant. Like, I just want a straight up yeah. gothic vampire place that serves weird ass food and cocktails that is just entirely in the blood rain universe. It's
2: it's like blood mead.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You can have so much fun with that. I'm into it. They, See, I'm. you could. got me
0: sold on the idea of Postal as a restaurant because you'd be very, very careful about how you ordered. Yeah. Like, do you guys need anything? Uh, my water is running. What? Uh, actually, no, it's good. We're good here. Thank you. Great service tonight. Your giant tip.
2: See? And then like the marching band from the first Postal game can come in and then like get like, wiped out for the dinner audience every night.
1: The, the big event. That's what everyone goes yeah. for.
0: Well, Bull, if you're listening... You can feel free to use all of these ideas. All we ask is a, uh, a a dining course at the nearest restaurant. So, all right. So, last question for the podcast, which is what we always do, and this is a this is a weird one because it's it's Bull. Like his career is what it is. Even people that don't like or haven't watched his films is familiar with his work. Like it's not like this is hurting for exposure, but this particular film does feel to me like something especially in a world where things like um you know house of the dead exist which is just incomprehensible like this is a pretty this is a pretty generically fine horror western with some bad acting and some bad scripting it's below average but it's it's in the realm of like average right so it is a curio within his body of work because i think it's i think it's pretty generically boringly competent filmmaking That doesn't like, it isn't going to make, nobody's going to watch it and want to do a drinking game to this. It just sort of is. So my question normally would be, oh, so does this movie deserve to get an audience? You know, how does this movie find its audience? Because it's been, quote, certified forgotten. But Reyna, let's start a little bit more with the idea of, does this film, like, does this film deserve to be remembered as more than just a bull film?
2: I think so, in a way, on the basis that, one, it's one of the few, like, horror westerns out there. So it's like, if you're morbidly curious, check it out. And two, like they just recently announced like about a year ago that a new video game company acquired the rights to the Blood Rain franchise and they're actually remastering one of the games and they're thinking about doing a whole new installment. So like in a way it's like this time capsule of like what this franchise was like at its quote-unquote peak before.
0: Donato, what do you think?
1: So I'm going to use this as a chance to support Tubi because I I, I do think if you are curious about jumping into the, the waters of Yubol, if you are curious about Seeing a video game adaptation franchise that is just off the rails. And I'm gonna tell y'all, I'm gonna watch the third one after this. I (laughs) cannot. I'm going to screw it. We're too we're too Uh, far in. We can't turn around. I'm, I'm gonna watch the third one after this. But I say that only because every single one of them is on Tubi. And it's only on Tubi. You can find all three of them to stream right now. You don't even have to register for Tubi. You can just go on and watch them. And sure, you have to deal with some commercials, but like that's fine. And I don't know why more people aren't taking advantage of Tubi over the Netflixes, over the other things, and giving it the time of day. So I am gonna say I am pleasantly surprised to find all three Blood Rain movies on Tubi. And for that reason alone,
0: give Tubi more credit. I think Raina put it best um when they were talking about the idea of it's a horror western and we need more horror westerns. So I think that's reason enough to seek it out. So I just wanna end this by because I realize we haven't done this yet. I need to put on record the closing lines of this film. No, um, I wanted to do it. I wanted to okay. do it. All right, Donato, you need to put it, because I wrote it down. And I'm sure I wrote you it, wrote down, it too. down, too. Are
1: you kidding me? I wrote it down as well. So what Before if Before we, do we
0: say our goodbyes, Donato, will you please linger in everyone's mind how Bull decides to end his movie?
1: This is how Bull takes you out of Blood Rain Deliverance. Life is like a penis. When it's hard, you get screwed. When it's soft, you can't beat it.
0: Those are the last lines of dialogue that are spoken by non-Rain characters as Rain rides off into the distance. It is the hero, the Shane shot of the film, and that is the dialogue that Bull put in there, which I had to back up twice to make sure that I'd heard it correctly and that for some reason my stream was not ghosting or doing something weird. <laughs> God bless that man's audacity.
2: Yeah. Yeah. She ends up in Germany after that when she rides off in the
0: sunset. <laughs> yeah, she rides all the way to Germany for, <laughs> from the Wild
1: West
2: right into the Third Reich.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: I don't I don't know how, but I'm not going to question it.
1: Yeah. Hey, you said it. She's a time-off a vampire. Who gives a fuck?
0: Well, Donato, who has no shortage of films he could be watching, yeah. will be leaving this podcast episode to watch that one instead. So that, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on where you land, is our Blood Rain Deliverance episode. Um, Raina, I want to say thank you for bringing this to us because I I genuinely, I mean this with all of my heart. Nobody else but you would have brought this to talk about on the show. So it just feels super appropriate that this was your film. Uh, for those listeners that aren't familiar with your work, that want to follow you on social media or check out your writing, what are the best places to go and, and see your work and kind of keep on top of the, the kind of stuff you're doing?
2: Yeah. Um, thank you for having me. I'm sorry this turned into more of a Blood Rain trilogy conversation, but... Uh... <laughs> I was happy to bring these movies to you guys to talk about because, you know, in a weird way, I love them. Um, You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jfcdoomblade. Um, You can also find my work being published pretty regularly at bloodydisgusting.com, roomorg.com, and fangoria.com. I do have a podcast of my own called Horror in Session. It's where me and a total newbie to the horror genre I basically assign her movies to watch and we deep dive them with guests. Um, Mm -hmm. We're on hiatus, but we're coming back with a Cronenberg series that should be a lot of fun. And that's at horror and session. We're also available on Spotify and Apple podcasts.
0: Very nice. Donato. Where where do people go to find your blood rain? The third Reich reactions.
1: You can find all of my blood rain tweets at Donato bomb on the Twitter. You can also find me on letterboxd and Instagram at the same handle and you can also find my writing all over the damn place. Slash film, Blade Disgusting. I uh, You can. I, I'm trying to think what I even have coming up. And right now what I got coming up for you is another Revenge of the Remakes for House of Haunted Hill that would have dropped by the time this is out. And also mm-hmm. you can read uh, me and Ariel Fisher taking over for Megan Navarro on the scariest scene ever. Now is going to be a weekly drop on Slash Film. So we got a lot of work cut out for us uh, bringing this, bringing y'all those scares. So give, give it a read. Let, let us know what we're doing. And uh, hey, tell us your scariest scene ever.
0: Yeah, no big deal. Just you and the managing editor of Fangoria doing a column together. No, yeah, you know. no big deal. MBD. As for myself, you can find me on Twitter at Labsplice. That's L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Please visit certifiedforgotten.com and check out some of the really incredible writing we have on the website. And if you are somebody who rates and reviews your podcasts, first of all, that's pretty cool of you. You should keep doing that. And second of all, you should definitely rate and review us on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from we are there and we'd love to hear from you so on that note reyna eventually we'll probably invite you back to talk about blood rain because three the third reich because we're gluttons for punishment but until that day uh, thank you again for joining us and we'll see you soon
2: not a problem thank you
0: i don't even know what you're going to do to take us out jesus teddy fuck christ yes